Welcome back to the Chats with Creators podcast. I am Bronte Charlotte and this is Cerebral Text with Kim Ho. I am currently sitting in my study with my little kitten, Vigo, sitting on my lap. He is purring his little heart out because I'm keeping him nice and warm. Uh, in Melbourne, we're having our fourth lockdown due to the global pandemic. And so I felt like this conversation that I had with Kim felt really relevant to the experiences that a lot of us are essentially repeating. <laughs> I also feel like it's really appropriate for me to release the first episode of season three in a lockdown, considering I started the podcast during a lockdown. We'll talk a lot about how the time in isolation last year affected us. And so I wanted to get this episode up for Melbournians who need a little reminder that you're absolutely not alone. I feel like we're all feeling the weight of this fourth lockdown. Maybe it's just me, but I think listening to someone as gentle as Kim Ho is probably one of the most soothing things I could do for myself right now. So I'm getting this out, releasing this to all of you. I'm not sure when the next episode will be up, but there are more on the way. (laughs) Today we chat about the internal battle of feeling like not having anything important to say moving from writing with your brain to finding the heart and emotion of the story and how creativity manifests differently for everyone during an experience like an extended lockdown. Kim talks about writing the great Australian play, his interest in Australian mythology and its inherent colonial heritage, how the conversation around representation in the arts covers up deeper issues that racism presents and the interconnectedness of individual struggles. Kim is a beautiful human and I've been so excited to talk to him for so long. It was such a joy to finally find the time to have a tea and get into his history in the arts and his passion for writing. Before I begin, I just want to acknowledge that I am recording these podcasts on stolen land, the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Let's jump in. Kim. Hello. Welcome. (laughs) How have you been today? Yeah, good, good. Yeah. Um, I've just moved into Northcote, taken to like walking along the Murray Creek. I've just been really enjoying walking, uh, Mm. particularly like walking trails along a a creek or Mm. river. I went for a walk along the creek this morning too. Mm. Yeah, I was in Preston all last year and just being like that much further away from parkland and particularly like bushland. Mm. I think had like quite a significant toll on it affects you for sure did you grow up in melbourne i grew up in sydney and you... i was very lucky i was up gordon way but there's a lot of like bushland around the Kuringai area that's just like at the end of the street our street was a cul-de-sac and yeah. at the end of that street was bushland i grew up quite used to being quite close to nature for one of a better word. yeah i'm the same i grew up on acreage and country outside of north of Brisbane and when I moved to Melbourne I moved from five acres <laughs> in like a four-bedroom house to a two-bedroom apartment without balcony yeah and without windows that opened so I was, I was like what have I done and it totally affected my my mental health and my just connection to the ground I like mm. I would I would go and walk to the closest park and literally take my shoes off and sit down and just be like oh I feel so much more grounded just because I'm touching like grass because I, I would walk around my property in bare feet and like that was yeah pretty normal. 
yeah, it's a big change. And I, I've spent the last two years here next to the Mary Creek and especially last year during lockdown, it was a godsend. Mm. It was so, so wonderful to be this close to water and trees and nature and yeah, it's huge. Yeah. So how did we meet Kim? Do you remember? I don't know. I have very vague memories. Yeah, okay. Of Sarah Fitzgerald introducing us mm-hmm. way back in VCA. We were discussing your writing cohort not working with my acting cohort. Yeah, that's it. And I was super disappointed because I was like, you guys are fucking amazing. And every, all the third years, you know, of all the third years that I had known had gotten to work with the writing students. And I was like, why can't we? And it was just in the midst of lots of change happening at VCA. And correct me if I'm wrong, that's where you started writing Great Australian Play? Yes, it was. Mm, Well, I feel like (laughs) at places like VCA and, and in the independent sector more generally, I feel like everyone has these orbits that you kind of like, and it's fine if those orbits never kind of collide. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, I feel like you get drawn towards people. It's it's quite nice. It's quite a nice feeling to have people just like doing their own thing and you're aware of them and they're, like, they're aware of you. That's it. Yeah. I've been very aware of you and your work since briefly met, well, maybe five years ago, <laughs> something like that. I've been for the past like few weeks, I've been doing these acting classes and there's only like one person in the class that I know and it's it's not surprising but it's been a little bit of a shock because I've been a part of that kind of VCA community which is quite broad because there's so many different people that study different crafts at VCA and you kind of either see them on campus or like somehow meet mm. people from different streams and yeah to be in a class of like 25 people where I only know one I've been like this is amazing it's like fresh and exciting and people have different ways of working and different history and I've been really loving it to like kind of branch out of that that circle super aware of how I hesitate to say clicky but like Mm. that when you're at an institution like the VCA I guess in in terms of wanting the path of least resistance it's so easy to kind of uh, if you're looking for collaborators to look for people who are also who have that shared experience who Mm. are in the same building or at least the same campus Mm. and yeah I've got like mates who have gone through the 16th street acting Mm. studio and there's like there's no kind of conversation between those two um, institutions like training institutions there's like this huge I guess other other parts of the industry and the fact that institutions like the VCA act as like the locus of emerging talent Mm. but it's it's so much more decentralized than that Mm. I think that the industry could be more decentralized or at least have those institutions talk to each other where did you kind of begin your creative journey I know you made a short film what back in 2013 it's called the language of love it's beautiful but like what happened like even before that like did you train in Sydney like what were your steps to kind of getting to where you are yeah I feel like I've I've done a lot of theater and performance ever since I can remember Mm -hmm. like making kind of short clips as a six-year-old or whatever um and then doing pantomimes at my local community theater doing shows at school the language of love came out of a competition I entered when I was in year 11 uh in 2012 it was called love bites and it was run by Australian theater for young people up till then, I hadn't actually had anything to do with ATYP, but 
I thought, I don't know where that impulse came from. Maybe that I was, I had been doing performance and I'd wanted to do more writing uh, and learn about it a bit more. Um, So I wrote a three minute monologue and off the back of that, ATYP funded a mentorship to flesh that out into an eight minute film. Yeah, so I did a mentorship under Tommy Murphy, who's an incredible playwright. Uh, And that was, I think, really formative. This was going on while I was doing Year 12. Um, So to have this thing that was completely outside the HSC, completely outside study, that was just for me and developing this thing that was incredibly important to me and and personal and um, my first kind of piece, serious piece of dramatic writing. And Tommy introduced me to a whole bunch of new plays, um, Australian plays and approaches to writing. And his perhaps like single biggest piece of advice was when he saw that I was thinking in very like thematic terms about the monologue, kind of pairing that back and looking at the emotional kind of substance of the work um, and really paying attention to character and like an emotional journey, kind of being aware that the themes and ideas that you're tossing around in your head are going to come out in the work anyway and that you don't have to start there. I think that that interplay between like metaphor and theme and allegory as a starting point in my practice versus character and emotion is like what people tend to resonate with most maybe. The kind of like heart versus head has been the theme, (laughs) defining theme of my writing. Yeah, I think I constantly go towards the cerebral intellectual engaging with a work intellectually rather than emotionally and and it's been a process of like trying to put that aside when I write certain stuff. So that comes out and then what happens after Language of Love is released? Yeah we put it online I think like March or April 2013. Mm -hmm. Yeah the fact that it found its audience online uh, I just assumed that people in Sydney in the theatre industry might see it. And specifically this whole project was about creating monologues that HSC students could use for their like HSC performance. I was thinking about like that's the end point for the film. Um, but because it was a short film, it could be entered into all these festivals and it ended up going as like YouTube's entry into Sundance oh Film my Festival goodness. in 2014. It just like took off in a way that we weren't expecting uh, and arrived at like I think a really interesting point as well like the show had uh, the the film has so much to do with like French and the French language and at the time France was debating marriage equality and it was just this like people all over the world were connecting with it in terms of uh, its content and it really found its audience in particularly young queer people Yeah, it was incredibly humbling and inspiring to me to be able to see my work kind of, yeah, connecting with people in a way that I hadn't anticipated. Yeah. Yeah, and I think as a writer it was validation of I can make a go at this. I think I was at the end of high school kind of thinking about where I wanted to go and like what I wanted to do with my career and what career might I pursue, all of that kind of stuff. And I think having the experience of the language of love, not just making it, but seeing it uh, Mm. connect with people was Mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm going to have a red hot go at this. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. I'll just try. Yeah. 
Did you then go on to just write more? What happened yeah, next? No, Tell me. I kind of had this hiatus okay. where I did a BA and I came down to Melbourne. So straight out of high school? Yeah. Big. Mm, it was like, it was great because I'd done a, a workshop at Malthouse. Okay. And that was my first time being in a different city by myself. Yeah. Um, so I associated Melbourne so much with independence and adulthood and all of that kind of mm. juicy, great stuff. Mm. So it was this huge this city meant so much to me. It continually meant more and more to me the more I stayed. Um, so it felt like a very natural choice to to move down. My undergrad was in theatre studies and cinema studies, and it was very much a kind of um, literature-based academic kind of theoretical way of engaging with theatre and with storytelling and screen, which I think was great in developing a critical a critical eye, but possibly made me a worse creative writer really yeah just like getting really into that cerebral like cognitive state I was writing so many essays that yeah my creative writing I felt was my process was around embedding themes into my story Mm -hmm. so that a hypothetical academic would then write what I wanted them to write in their essays about it um so it's this weird like Starting building a play back from. <laughs> it's so complicated. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't realize I was doing it yeah, at the time, yeah, yeah, but it was yeah. that like going, oh, this is, this is what I want specifically like academics to take out of mm. this play, even though it was not going to be analyzed in that way. Yeah. Instead of asking questions about which audience members are going to, who's the ideal audience member for my play mm. and what do I want them to say about it? as they step out of the theatre or feel. Mm. Which is kind of what almost happened naturally with language of love. Yeah, I think so. People just connected with it. I attribute that to working with Tommy on it, especially him kind of really encouraging me to find the emotional crux of it Mm -hmm. uh, and find the like most, the simplest expressions of any of the ideas or the emotional beats Mm. uh, of that character's journey in that story so that people could connect to it on an emotional level rather than it being this kind of almost like thought experiment or, yeah, thematic kind of thing. Did you feel like you had to kind of work to bring it back to emotional journeys and emotional stories when you moved into studying at VCA? Uh, Yeah. So after my BA, um, I took a year off and in that year I wrote Mirror's Edge, um, which is I think still quite cerebral and thematic, but – based hopefully more and more around emotions and character journeys. And there was, I think, a lot of, I indulged my impulse towards sentimentality. Um, So there was real emotional sincerity expressed in the characters uh, that I think audiences responded with. And I'm quite proud of that. But it was still very much like this play set across three different time periods in the same place. And the conceit being that this uh, lake in the Wimmera region um, of Victoria could kind of bend time or refract time so that the characters in these three different time periods across three separate centuries could speak to each other and engage across time and across culture. So there's a lot of like cerebrally stuff happening in yeah. terms of engaging with that very like tangled and thorny history of sovereignty and cross-cultural encounter so I think I came out of it going, I'm really proud of this play, but I think it's very messy. Um, and the impulse 
for going to study at the VCA was I, I really want to write focused plays. Mm. And I think that what happened at the VCA was I, I came out of it doing the exact opposite and writing an even more messy play. Yeah, which is probably good in a way. The guidance that I got throughout that year was so much about, I guess, writing from the gut and ignoring the critical voice and finding, like, playing with form, ignoring what people had told me, quote unquote, good theatre constituted, to write something that was more uniquely me. And yeah, it's like an exercise, a one year exercise in finding your voice. So I think Great Australian Play was an exercise in in that uh, I ended up writing this play that was created entirely out of theatrical conventions that I hated as an experiment. And I realized that in doing that, I was writing from a place of revulsion, whereas Mirror's Edge was writing from a place of hope, I suppose. This was this, it was actually an emotional way of engaging with this content. I just wasn't really aware of it. Where did the idea of Great Australian Play come from? Like, where did it stem I think that I think my mum had sent me a link to a podcast, an interview with someone who had written a book on the Lassiter legend. Mm-hmm. And I found the that conversation really interesting. I didn't realize at the time, but my mum had sent it to me because she knew that our family had had some connection to the Lassiter story. Uh, and when I started researching, it turned out that my great great grandfather was best friends with the leader of that expedition in 1930. Okay. Um, And that that guy, Fred Blakely, uh, had borrowed my great-grandfather's typewriter to type the manuscript of his account of the expedition and that that initial document, that manuscript, was a family heirloom in my family. So my mum's cousin had a copy and, uh, and sent it across. Yeah, it just felt like uh, struggling for the first half of that year at the VCA mm. on what I had to say, what like what I had to say that the world wanted to hear or or whatever. And it just felt like I didn't know why this play was or this topic was calling to me, mm. but that I could just indulge it. And you were given the Patrick White Playwriting Award for it. Was that before you had started writing it or was it after you had written it? I'd actually been given the Patrick White Award for Mirror's Edge. Ah. Um, so it's in, in, in many ways like uh, it was while I was writing Great Australian Play mm. and in, in a way I think it, it inflected and informed the way that I wrote Greatos because it, I was almost like buckling under the weight of the expectation of mm. what is Patrick White Award winning playwright Kim Ho going to write next? Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah, it almost became not a, a meme, but um, <laughs> I'd, I'd experienced this early success in high school that was really unexpected and then unexpected success with this play that I'd written. Uh, and now I was at the VCA and I got this sense that there was maybe like buzz or expectation around, yeah, what, what my next step was and almost reacted by um, writing something that defied all of that and... I mentioned that Great Australian Play was written with theatrical conventions that I dislike, one of which is writers writing about writing and writers writing themselves into plays. Yeah. Um, and I did both of those because <laughs> yes. uh, I realised that the Lasseter legend is all about these men venturing into the centre of Australia to find a reef of gold that clearly didn't exist. Mm-hmm. 
um, and that kind of like foolish hope that they're going to strike it rich. And I was sifting through all this historical information and it struck me that I was also on my own kind of like creative quest yeah. uh, for, for creative gold and, and, and trying to like quite earnestly find the great Australian play in this, in this mess of this absolutely catastrophic stupid journey um, <laughs> of these like this absolute foolhardy mission. Yeah. My kind of my foolishness in, in trying to earnestly find that gold it just felt like such a strong parallel. Yeah. And I, I was looking at that kind of meta angle and decided that it had to be broken open and I, I couldn't write a, a serious version of this story. It had to be a condemnation of the whole enterprise of trying to find, in my sense, anything useful to say about Australian mythology mm. as a non-Indigenous Australian. Do you feel like there was an element of like rebelling against getting quite a mainstream prize as well? I think so, but I don't think it was like rebellion in a um like ungrateful no. or um delicious way. I think it was an expression of anxiety over meeting those expectations that came with a mainstream mm. award. Mm. So deliberately writing something that would scurry those expectations. Um like, well I can't possibly meet them, so I might as well write a theatrical kind of train wreck of a play that that is deliberately bursting at the seams and like unconventionally structured, formally invented, like experimental, almost, I think, not giving them what, like, the, I don't know who them is, but like not giving them what they want because I know that I can't give them that at this point. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Patrick, the figure of Patrick White, whose plays I hadn't really properly engaged with prior to winning that award became more and more central to to the way I was approaching the play. Um, he had such a um, cynical but and and like refreshingly ruthless attitude to colonial bullshit um, in Australia, and he described the great Australian emptiness of this like a culture that just has nothing at its heart because it's founded on violence and theft. And he was saying all of this stuff that I kind of was trying to muddle my way through years and years prior. And I was just going, what What have I got to say as a young playwright that the greats haven't already said? Um, and specifically this amazing playwright who towers over the Australian theatrical landscape, the only like Australian Nobel laureate for literature, and this, this man who whose career I'm kind of like suddenly associated with because of this award. So there's something very selfish in going, oh, I've got like beef with Patrick White or, or <laughs> that I'm like in, in specifically Patrick White's shadow because I wasn't. Mm. Um, but I think that anxiety of influence and measuring up did impact the play that I was writing. And I was maybe skewering that at the same time, like the idea of my associating myself with, with him. It's a lot of pressure, though, mm. to receive a mainstream award that people are aware of that, you know, the work that follows, there's the pressure that you put on yourself, but also pressure, maybe it's not real by society, but it feels like it's there that you ha you have to step up and you have to do better than you just did even like, yeah, it's a it's a lot of pressure, especially as you said, like as a young playwright, that's that's a lot to deal with. Yeah. And also with the themes that you chose within the play, like and writing 
writing about parts of Australian history that you weren't present for, but like you have a connection, your family has a connection to, but also neither of us have that same connection to land that First Nations people do. I don't know. I, I feel like there's a lot of layers with the pressure that was put on you and maybe that you put on yourself and then the content that you were writing about not necessarily having that connection to land or that or feeling like you can't write about it because it's not your history mm. that you know certain parts anyway I yeah, just, no, I'm sure. rambling now but I'm like there's feels like there's a lot there was a lot on your shoulders for for that yeah, time I think so I I think I put like too much pressure on myself anyway I think it's um, normal yeah, <laughs> yeah. relatable <laughs> um it was interesting we had uh, a playwright called Sybil Kempson come in and run some workshops with us at the VCA and she was talking about this idea that playwrights put too much pressure on themselves to write important work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember having such a reaction to that, at like a negative reaction, like, well, if you're not writing work that you feel is important, capital I important, mm. what's the point? Mm. And realising that when writers, or often when writers start from that point of like, we are making this really important work that's going to change everything it's a recipe for that work either becoming self-indulgent or almost like eating its own tail or something at least like becoming kind of didactic or yeah and I also was very aware that I didn't want to write white guilt the play kind of thing um or in this case like half white guilt the play (laughs) non-indigenous guilt the play Yeah, I wanted to explore colonial mythology from both within and without, knowing that I have experienced racism, but I also have white or half-white privilege and non-Indigenous privilege, that I'm writing on stolen land with an understanding that in writing on national themes, I call Great Australian Play a G'day Fantasia on national (laughs) themes. In doing that, like this nation is fundamentally illegitimate. Uh, So how can I kind of write with that being really ingrained in the DNA of this play without taking up the kind of oxygen and resources that would otherwise go to First Nations artists Mm -hmm. who are obviously so much better placed to speak about sovereignty and dispossession and colonization. And I think that a lot of my work has actually been around land and sovereignty and national identity, but with the understanding that it's not my place to venture into certain terrain. Mm. Um, but I think it's really important that non-Indigenous artists do write with that in mind and see how it can inflect work uh, in that way. But yeah, I, I kind of felt that my quite tenuous family connection to this historical event that's kind of become mythologized was my way into talking about specifically colonial Australian mythology and the way that we valorize mediocre and quite like deceitful men um (laughs) and that in writing a satire that was as i mentioned like from this place of of cynicism and revulsion i could kind of sift through the ugliness Mm. that i was seeing Mm. yeah it was like an an exploration of that emptiness that patrick white was talking about and that ugliness and hopefully the play was operating on those on those terms so it was like talking about sovereignty yeah and kind of colonial australia but it's all like punching up to colonial australia or punching inwards i think it's so fascinating how much i've thought about the play since i saw it and i think that is just like your work is so thoughtful and intelligent and you know in a way 
quite cerebral as you were saying like and it makes you think and it makes you consider things that maybe you haven't thought about before and I thought that you writing this play and then writing yourself into it and the story and how it how this history has kind of been presented to you know modern day Australians like you know these kind of almost fairy tales of what colonialism was is I find it really powerful and I find that work important with a capital I (laughs) like I think I think some of the like the work that I find most captivating and meaningful and moving is just the stories that that don't necessarily yeah that aren't self-indulgent and that aren't like written to be important there's stories about what has happened and and also in a way making like as you said like it's not a meme but it's like you've you've kind of created this world that was like this was a ridiculous a ridiculous quest but we look at it so seriously and like it's like that's that was a really important part of our history but it's like no it was fucking ridiculous mm. and to be able to write a story about that i think i think is really important i think that the process i went on in writing that play it became so much easier to approach it with sybil's kind of insistence on not making things capital i important yeah uh and that the themes kind of like what tommy was saying way back in 2012 13 the themes and issues that you're thinking about will find its find their way into your work anyway, mm. but you can kind of unshoulder that yoke or something. Yeah, unshackle yourself a bit. And I ended up writing that play from a place of, like, this isn't important. Like, mm. what I have to say isn't important. And, and that these are just provocations and an exercise in holding a mirror up to our own ugliness. Mm. And once I had done that and... Yeah, taken that sense of responsibility, which is also, I think, maybe quite self-indulgent, the sense that, like, I alone can make this point Mm. um, and start, like, almost satirizing that sincerity. It became a lot easier to write and I think also created a much healthier relationship between me and this thing that I was writing. And I think also with the production and the audience, like, I think I feel a lot more open to receiving that than than other things that that are essentially like you know the Australian play about white guilt or mm. whatever it may be. Yeah, a lot of the mm. reviewers were like, "Is this the great Australian play? Is this a great Australian?" <laughs> play? I'm like, "No, it's no, not." It's, a joke. <laughs> it's a, like it's. I mean, it's not like a deliberate. Yeah, it's not a deliberately bad play. No, but it's it, like it's it's critiquing the the idea of there being great Australian plays. In, yeah, in but general. also, like, what when you think about it, like the Australian plays that are like quite well known and held up as being the great Australian plays. Like I don't feel like any of them are necessarily indigenous productions or stories that really honestly reflect colonization and and the mass destruction that happened when white people came to Australia. I feel like they tend to be like, plays by people like Patrick White, like these white men who write plays about things that don't, I mean, Patrick White does talk about the emptiness of what, what our identity is as Australians. But yeah, I I think that, that those plays that are held up as those great Australian plays aren't necessarily a true reflection of what our history is or what our day-to-day experiences Mm. are or yeah, things along those lines. I think it's changing. I think that there is stuff that's coming out and, and getting a lot more awareness and kind of getting the the space and the time it needs to be heard and seen and and 
received, but mm. I think typically in our history, those great Australian plays aren't necessarily things that show and represent Australia. Totally. Yeah. And, and like, as long as Australia is this, yeah, like illegitimate idea mm. that actually kind of doesn't or shouldn't exist as it does, mm. we can't like any kind of claim to be a great Australian play is probably colonial and therefore violent. Yeah. Yeah, I think for all his incredibly like luminous and incisive writing, Patrick White wrote the novel Voss, which is I think quite frequently cited as one of the great Australian novels, and it's also about like a foreigner who tries to cross Australia from east to west kind of eerily, uncannily similar to the Lassiter journey, but in the 1800s rather than the 1900s. And it all goes to like another expedition that goes terribly wrong. So this figure of Voss was also hanging over that play. But yeah, it was an attempt to write a great Australian myth. Like Christos Cholkas has this Writers on Writers book that he kind of writes this like love letter to Patrick White and his body of work. But even he admits that it was kind of this like misguided or or dated attempt for of Patrick White's to try and create this like the Australian uh, myth. Yeah. So in Melbourne, we had this incredibly long lockdown, which was like 112 days, 114 days. I haven't seen that number. (laughs) Yeah, big. Over 100 days where we were homebound. And that's hard and everyone kind of responded in really different ways. And I'm really fascinated about what happened with you, how you, you know, we've kind of like you mentioned a little bit about it to me privately, but what happened for you during that time of being homebound? Like, did you find that you spent more time finding creative outlets or did you take a step back? I know for moments for me, I was like, no, can't engage. I don't, I can't look at the news. I can't see what's going on in Sydney. I don't want to engage in anything creative or artistic. I need to just like, I don't know, kind of kind of like, What's it called when bears go? I kind of felt like oh, I yeah, went into hibernation. like hibernation yeah. <laughs> and then like burst out at one point and was like, I have to start roller skating and I have to start macrame and I have to like paint and I got watercolors and I was like trying to do all of these creative Amazing. things because I felt like I just totally just stripped everything away. Yeah. Do you want to talk about what happened for you during that time and, and then how we kind of, or how you moved out into, cause you had some work lined up and like what steps you kind of went on to kind of get into mm. that. Yeah. Oh man. I'm so happy to hear about your like burst of creativity because <laughs> I, uh, for the longest time I was, all my kind of creative impulses dried up. Um, and I, I did not feel creative at all. It just felt like there was no point in creating anything and I was finding myself disengaging from so much, like not contacting friends and spending way too much time on Twitter when Black Lives Matter um, was at its peak. I think I was like, I wouldn't say kind of depressed, but I think I had disengaged with so much of anything creative, uh, like remotely in that ballpark. I was lucky to have kept my copywriting job, but yeah, it just felt very, very strange. And I don't think I was like coping too well in terms of not feeling creative, but also feeling like I should be creative. That whole sense of like a lockdown is not a residency. Oh my God, not at all. But how easy it was to think about it 
in that way in or that like way. how or be, hard it was or like to saying to yourself i have yourself so much that. time i should be writing or i should be working on something even just like i should be reading for pleasure yeah how many novels are sitting on my bookshelf that i haven't read and now it's the perfect opportunity to and i just didn't feel like doing that At either all. and yeah it was it was hard i think not to reprimand myself or be harsh on myself for, for not being super productive or um or using that time in a quote-unquote sensible or um, healthy manner. Yeah, it, it's also difficult to sometimes, I think, to with this unprecedented event. <laughs> uh, we haven't lived through this kind of thing, so it's really hard to assess yourself in real time of how you're coping and you can actually be, like, not doing very well, but you just think, I just have to get to the end of the week or, or whatever. But, yeah, in terms of, like, the creative output or, or my creative life through that year all the theaters were closing and I had this very strange feeling of not minding or or not um not mourning theaters going dark and I had been incredibly lucky it was literally I think three weeks or less than three weeks between finishing up the great Australian play before everything shut down mm. I, I think I was exhausted because I was in the play, I was there every single night and it was a long play. I was getting home late, all of that kind of stuff mm. that I just didn't want to like be in a theatre or, or have much to do with theatre for a while. And so when everything went dark, it didn't impact me as much as I'd, I felt it should. And at the same time, I started taking my first baby steps into screen. Uh, I'd done some note-taking in writer's rooms and then got the opportunity to script coordinate and co-write an episode of a show called The Newsreader. But it was, I think, quite an unusual and was like incredibly fortunate to get that opportunity. Uh, note-taking is commonly like seen as a quite legitimate pathway into screenwriting. Uh, you kind of like see really experienced people doing it. And they know that you're an aspiring screenwriter. So there's that kind of like unofficial mentorship capacity going on at the same time as you're providing the note-taking as a service. But yeah, script coordinating as an administrative step up from note-taking, um, it's also like a full-time gig. So I was lucky to have moved into a job that, that was in the arts mm. and was full-time. Yeah, and having come from independent theatre, having this like writing or, or um, arts job that paid really well was very, it just felt like Christmas. Mm. Um, so it was this sense of like, there was survivor's guilt that I had got my play in just before theatres closed and survivor's guilt that I was moving into screen when theatre as, as like the entire industry could literally not make work. I think what I was kind of most interested in, in reflection uh, is that I had had my first gig co-writing this episode of, of the show with the creator, Michael Lucas. Um, and that was really incredible experience. All of that was pretty much done remotely, um, which I could do. And then this was around August, 2020 production was slated to start in late August or September, but had to get pushed back for the second lockdown to around late October, November. So I had guaranteed work, script coordinating on this show but I had to wait until production was at, or pre-production was actually um, starting so I had all of September and a bit of October 
to twiddle my thumbs. And it was the perfect time for me to, I was like financially stable. I was at home. I was just waiting for full-time work to begin. It was the perfect time to work on my own stuff. And I still didn't feel like doing anything. So I ended up having almost like this kind of second adolescence. (laughs) Um, I bought a PS4 the previous year and hadn't really used it. Uh, and then I just suddenly started gaming and and not having been a gamer or hadn't like gamed a lot in high school or anything. So it was this quite new experience. But I mean, a lot of people have spoken very eloquently on why video games were useful uh, for a lot of people during the pandemic, namely like escaping to different worlds that, that were controlled by rules and that you could kind of feel this great sense of agency and freedom in and it kind of escape to those worlds when our world, mm-hmm. the rules were so unclear. Yeah, and we didn't feel like we had any freedom or agency or control. I played a lot of pandemic games. Um, really? Like I, I literally started with a game called A Plague Tale Innocence. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's set in, yeah, like 1300s France. And there's like the plague of rats and it's, it's, I was playing horror games like The Last of Us and, and realizing that that was probably subconsciously a way of like engaging both with a pandemic in a way that made me feel empowered, but also engaging with storytelling again. And, and I got really into like video essays and things about narrative design in, in video games and like branching dialogue options and the beauty and and excitement of interactive storytelling. So there was this whole kind of period where I was, I think maybe dipping my toe back into the water, whereas I had had experience in theater and screen, I was suddenly able to kind of take a, a, a really sudden right turn into a completely different medium. Yeah. And by giving myself the permission to like you don't actually have to become a game like a narrative designer or anything like there's no professional stakes associated with this it was a way of indulging in kind of creative impulses again uh without any stakes and without any yeah that's a really interesting point that it was like no it didn't have stakes in terms of a career or anything whereas like if you had been writing something or you know doing some personal you know creative work there's always, I mean, I feel like there's always a little part of me that goes like, oh, where will this lead? Or like, what what can I do with this? Whereas if you're just there playing a game and enjoying it for what it is, or like, sounds like you were kind of educating yourself on how these things were made and stuff. Mm. Like, that's that's a great thing to be spending your time on. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I think. I think so. I think it was like professional interest without yeah. like seriously considering yeah. this is going to be where my career is headed mm. or anything. Yeah. Towards the end of 2019 and the start of 2020, I was reading a lot of feminist literature and it was getting to the point where I was reading stuff that had like a lot of statistics in it and like it was getting pretty dark and all of these books were like really bringing me down and because I'm a very like emotional, empathetic person, I'd like read a chapter on the stats of stuff you don't really want to know but it's really important to know and and Mm. I would get really upset and so all through lockdown I kind of took a break from reading and – Something I, I've talked about before on the podcast, but I, I started doing as lockdown finished was reading like these childhood books of mine that are like super easy to read. I could read like a book in two days, yeah. but reflecting on them, even though they're young adult books, they're very feminist. And I was like, 
oh, I'm kind of like allowing myself. I'm like slowly bringing myself back into this world that I really needed to take a break from. For sure. That, because it was too heavy. And then I was like in this fantasy world of like, you know, medieval times. And, and it was like creative because it was reading and it was also, yeah, allowing me to kind of bring back some some energy and passion mm. for the things that I couldn't deal with during the pandemic. Yeah, I I had this experience where I was deliberately not reading much fiction because my brain was doing this, I think, quite unhealthy thing of like how would I – how would I adapt this into a screenplay? Yeah, right. <laughs> and like watching just some show on Netflix, mm. it's, it gets harder and harder to turn the turn your brain off in that kind of like critical writerly sense of like how would I have written this differently? Mm. Uh, it's I, I think that for for whatever reason I found it more difficult to turn that uh, switch off last year. Mm. I think because so much of I spent so much of that year telling myself that I should be doing work or I should be producing something but yeah after maybe like a week before my full-time work on the newsreader was about to begin I went cold turkey on video game uh, video games completely and just wrote a play in that week and it wasn't (laughs) even planned or anything Mm. it wasn't like oh okay I better not play any more games in case it bleeds into the time like when I'm actually working it was like, okay, I'm done with this now for like for the moment. And suddenly all the the affection and emotion that I have for, for theater and for storytelling and for like creatively putting like myself on the page, all of that just overflowed again. Mm-hmm. I think that period of time looking back on it was um so integral in giving myself permission yeah. to not. Yeah. Realizing that that voice of saying you should be doing X. It's like, it's obviously so unhealthy, Mm. but finding ways to like practical ways to switch it off and Mm. and ignore it uh, or or deny it is that I had to kind of have that experience of, um, yeah, taking that right turn Mm. in order to return to stuff that I was really passionate about. How do you feel about the industry that we're a part of? Like what have you observed in the treatment of Asian Australian creatives and and has it changed or do you feel like there is a change happening or is there something about the industry that you feel needs attention or has affected you in a certain way? It's a very weirdly broad but also specific question. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely – yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot recently mm. because I have personally had quite a dream run of it uh, in both – theater and screen I think where I've I've seen systemic and structural racism and and kind of like exclusion uh in the programming of seasons of theater companies and and things I I kind of feel like things are getting better but too slowly um but my experience with people in the industry has been largely incredibly positive I've also been starting to make work at a time where particularly cultural diversity has become something that a lot of people are really earnestly and sincerely working to improve on, mm. uh, companies and, and professionals. But I've also heard horror stories from colleagues and peers around how they were treated and mistreated, overlooked and excluded and belittled in the industry. 
Uh, I think there are a lot of people who say the right things and like people in positions of power get kind of gatekeepers who know they have to publicly support diversity but see it as a an impediment to getting on with making work mm. like they've always done. Um, this kind of like tacked on thing they need to do for PR but not something that absolutely needs to change in the core kind of DNA of their company or um, organization. I feel like there have been like May, June, July last year was a huge watershed moment in the way that organizations spoke and thought about structural racism. I think that the impulse for a lot of gatekeepers will be to, to go back to the way things were and use financial constraints based on the pandemic as an excuse for programming conservatively. That's my real fear that they can kind of rationalize basically defying the progress that is happening because they need to program their Arthur Millers and their blah, blah, blah. I, I've got this, I think, maybe quite divided view where I'm incredibly critical of certain aspects of the industry and I think that particularly like screen but theatre as well is still very Eurocentric and very white. I'm conscious that Asian Australian representation is getting better probably ahead of for example, African Australian representation, and that our success can't be at the uh, at the exclusion of yeah other voices. And with every success for Asian Australians, uh, we've got to make sure that it's not this kind of like almost like this model minority situation, like where the most accessible um, ethnic group who can be enfranchised without too much fuss. Uh, I think that's my my concern in that way. Mm. I've been thinking as well a lot about the rising anti-Asian hate and specifically like Sinophobic violence in the States. I see the States and the UK as in some ways a canary in the coal mine uh, for Australia. And we've seen Sinophobic uh, and xenophobic hatred with regards to the pandemic all last year. But I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to manifest in programming and in the stories that we're telling i'm not sure how the future is going to look for the safety of asian australians um particularly with like international relations with china <laughs> deteriorating really fast i wouldn't say that i'm like fearful at the moment um, but it's certainly on my mind a lot um, and i'm quite interested in how the industry can help with that but yeah in in, in terms of specifically asian australian stories and, and I guess Asian American stories because the Minari and I guess like films like that are um, very much in our cultural zeitgeist as well. There seems to be these two conversations going on, one about more representation, which is obviously good, but it's almost like people are treating that kind of feel-good conversation and, and quite a privileged conversation as the more important one when the more important conversation is Asian Americans are getting gunned down and that there are like these this huge wave of, of violence uh, against specifically like Chinese, but any kind of Asian folks. Yeah, the, the representation question seems to, to me to be connected, but also like just such a small part of the wider conversation. I just don't think that that's going to be the answer long term to like, we. <laughs> We, the family law is is amazing, but it's not going to change people's hearts and minds 
in the same way that like the language of love, I think was validation for a lot of young queer youths. And I did hear stories of like people's grandparents watching it and reassessing their attitudes towards queer people in Australia, but it's not going to make them necessarily like didn't necessarily make them vote yes in the plebiscite rather than no. I think that all, this whole conversation and this whole issue has brought out in me this uh, tension between politically engaged work and how like art is not enough to be activism. It's not enough to just write plays and, and call that activism. What else can we be doing? Well, I think it needs to be associated with action, mm. protesting and donating where you can and mm. engaging with community groups. That's There's nice. a lot of amazing organisation and activism going on in the States at the moment. I think in Australia, like this year at least, um, my attention has has been so much focused around the Brittany Higgins sexual assault conversations mm. around mm. consent and, and structural misogyny, as well as continuing Indigenous deaths in custody. Mm. And it feels like those topics are so, like they ought to tower over the cultural deba- debate at the moment mm. because they have been, yeah, ignored and, and downplayed for so long. It's It's such a kind of upsetting topic because there are so many places that people's focus could be like there's so much injustice and violence and hatred and and it's overwhelming like I it's almost like there's there's somewhere or something that you could be focusing on but there's also so much else happening that maybe you if you split your focus and there's not enough on one, there's not enough on the other. And yeah, it's a, it's a lot. Um, but it's, it's actually like as, as a woman, it's really nice to hear that fighting misogyny, Mm -hmm. particularly in like really in these kind of crazy powered structured places like government. Uh, yeah, it's, it's nice to hear that that's something that you focused on. Hearing you say that I'm, I realized that last year I did read, or at least start reading uh, this book, um, Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything. Mm. It basically, it's it's looking at how capitalism and climate, climate um, activism are yeah. mutually exclusive. That, yeah, extractivism uh, and this idea of infinite growth can't exist with a planet with finite resources. Mm. But in it, Naomi Klein is talking about how climate activism is connected to all other kinds of activism. That creating, like saving the environment and protecting the planet and our natural resources gives us the opportunity to and is connected with the fight for social justice. So class struggle, struggle against racism, struggle against misogyny, struggle against ableism is also the struggle against to try and fix the climate crisis. Mm. And that the the idea of more sustainable living and a more sustainable world is a more equitable world as well. Mm. I, I think that I found that idea of interconnected struggles really reassuring. I, instead of feeling like I'm ignoring other struggles when I'm focusing on a specific one, knowing that where I'm putting my time and energy uh, and passion is in, in a way connected to those other issues i think it is all interconnected it's all about fighting for humanity in a way fighting for empathy and connection and 
equality and uh, yeah, you can't really be fighting for <laughs> women's rights if the planet dies and, and we all <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it's like, like, well, what's the what's the point? Yeah, like, capitalist logics are the logics of patriarchy yeah. and white supremacy. Um, yeah, it, capitalism and colonization are, are so in, intricately yeah. connected. Yeah, and also then if you you know if one is focused on one thing, if you're focusing on you know the fight against misogyny or climate action or racism towards a particular culture like that's not not enough that's doing something and that's that's helping in more ways than you could probably know because it all is entwined and and connected obviously it's not an excuse to not make your activism Mm. intersectional Mm. Um, (laughs) but yeah I, I just really like the idea that an equitable world mm. is equitable in in, in intersectional ways. Yeah. Like it, the reason why a kind of like a left wing person might be yeah like pro choice and also pro climate like and and why that's a reasonable assumption is precisely because like these all of these ideas are interconnected. Yeah, I think that xenophobia and sinophobia is probably making the, <laughs> its way into my my plays like I'm working on two new plays now uh, and I think both of them are being in the kind of research and brainstorming phase at the moment Uh, both of them are very much existing in this understanding that like the world has fundamentally shifted Mm. that ugliness that has always been there is on the rise and yeah I, I think I just keep thinking about how easy it is to ignore other people's humanity. Quite preoccupied with that as a dramatic area of inquiry. What brings you joy creatively? Just to end on an uplifted note. (laughs) Yeah. I think the feeling of, I mean, collaboration brings me joy. Every time I'm in a writer's room or a rehearsal room, I get this sense of, affirmation of my choice that I made way back in 2013 of going I'm gonna give this a red hot go and it just feels like a reminder that oh yeah this is what I'm meant to be doing because I love it so damn much Mm. there's a sense of being like surrounded by really good people when story is is getting discussed or a scene's getting up on the floor or something and you're in that kind of world of potential the feeling of like working towards the common goal of making this shared thing as good as it can possibly be. It's just so intensely satisfying. It reminds me of, I think it's like Tony Kushner quote where he's describing activism and it's like, there's, there's a special joy in being on the bus back from a protest with like a bus full of people who vigorously agree with you. (laughs) Um, That just that sense of the same forward direction and momentum uh, and that sense of like shared shared ownership or connection to this um, this thing that you're making. It's like there's no better feeling. I agree. Thanks so much, Kim. Thank you. Thanks for coming in and chatting with me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much. So that was my conversation with Kim Ho. 
It can be such a weird thing to reflect on a really difficult time. If lockdown has been difficult for you, any of the lockdowns that have been happening around Australia and the world, I think it's important to hear other people's experiences and how they maybe found ways to make it through, distract themselves, or to find moments of joy. I really hope that we don't have to be continually locking ourselves in our homes due to this pandemic for much longer, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> if there is ever a need for support or assistance when you're having a rough time, if there's one thing that these lockdowns have shown me, it's it's how wonderfully supportive people can be. And I really hope that we bring that forward into life post-COVID <laughs> because I think it's something that can help move us forward. Anyway, I'm not sure when the next episode is coming out. I have a few lined up, but I just really wanted to get this one out as a little uh, <laughs> a season three teaser. But yeah, Kim and I got to chat before the lockdown started and so I felt it was important to, to get it out and to have it in the world for, for others to listen to. Thank you all for your support. Thanks for your constant love and kindness, encouragement during a really trying time. Get out there and support independent theatre, independent art and keep trekking along guys. Sending you all love. Stay creative. <laughs>